Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News. Normally I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington, but today we have a very special episode. Rather than our usual news wrap, we have three separate interviews I did earlier this month with three very interesting guests, author and health economist Amy Finkelstein, author and physician Sylvia Morris, and physician and medical educator Michael Lenore. So let's get right to it. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast Amy Finkelstein, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, noted health policy wonk, and one of my favorite people in healthcare. She's got a new book just out called We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. Amy Finkelstein, welcome to What the Health. Thanks so much for having me on, Julie. So it's been a minute since large-scale health system reform was on the national agenda, I think even in the research community, which is in some ways odd because I don't think there's ever been as much unanimity that the health system is completely dysfunctional as there is right now. But I'm starting to see inklings of ideas bubbling up. I interviewed Kate Baker, your former partner in research, a couple of months ago. And I don't know if you saw it, but there's a new Republican health reform plan just out from the Hoover Institution. Why is now the time to start talking about this again? I mean, I think the right question is, why haven't we been talking about it all along? (laughs) I think it's unfortunately always timely to talk about how to fix the incredibly deep-rooted rot in our healthcare, quote-unquote, system. Why has it been so hard to reach any consensus about how health insurance should work? We don't I mean, we're at a point even in the United States where we don't all agree that everyone should have health insurance. So it's a really good question. I think my co-author, Laurent Idev, who's my long term collaborator, and I came to realize in writing this book is that we weren't getting the right answers and consensus on them because we weren't asking the right questions, both as researchers and in the public policy discourse. There's a lot of discussion of what do you think of single payer or you know, should we have a public option or what about health savings accounts? But what we came to realize, and it's kind of idiotically obvious once we say it, but it's still unfortunately bears saying, you can't talk about the solution until you agree on what is the goal? What are we trying to do in health policy and health policy reform? And there are, of course, many admirable reasons to want health policy reform or government intervention more generally in health policy. You can think, and this is what we've worked on for many years, that you know Adam Smith's invisible hand doesn't work that well in medical marketplace. You can be interested in making sure that we try to improve population health. You can think that healthcare is a human right. There are many possible reasons. What we came to realize in working on this book and what then provided startling clarity and hopefully ultimately consensus on the solution is that while all of these uh, may be admirable goals, none of them are actually the problem that we have been trying but failing to solve with our health policy for the last 70 plus years. What becomes startlingly clear when you look at our history, and it's the same in other countries as well, they've just succeeded more than we have, is that there is a very clear commitment or a social contract, if you will, that we are committed that people should have access to essential medical care regardless of their ability to pay. Now, 
That may sound absurd in the only high-income country without universal health coverage, but as we discuss in our book, that represents our failure to fulfill that commitment, not its absence. And as we describe in great detail, it's very clear from our history of policy attempts that there is a strong commitment to do this. This is not a liberal or a conservative perspective. It's, as we discuss, an innate, in some sense, psychological or moral impulse. And once you recognize this, as people have across the political spectrum, fundamentally, we're not going to ever consciously deny access to essential medical care for people who lack resources. And that an enormous number of our existing policies have been a backhanded, scrambling, not coherently planned attempt to get there. And I'm not just talking about the requirement that People can't be turned away from the emergency room. If you look at all of these public policies we have to provide health insurance, if you're poor, if you're young, if you're old, if you're disabled, if you're a veteran, if you have specific diseases, there's a program for low-income women with breast and cervical cancer. There's a program for people with tuberculosis, for people with AIDS, for people with kidney failure. All of these arose out of particular political circumstances and salient moments where we felt compelled to act. It becomes very clear that we're committed to doing this. And then the solution then becomes startlingly simple. Once we agree, and hopefully, if you don't already, our book will convince you that whether or not you support this mission, it's very clear it is the mission we've adopted as a society, then the solution becomes startlingly simple. And the solution is? (laughs) Universal, automatic, basic coverage that's free for everyone with the option for those who want to and can afford it to buy supplemental coverage. So the key is that the coverage be automatic, right? We've tried mandating that people have coverage. Requiring it doesn't make it so. In fact, a a really sobering fact is that something like six out of 10 of the people who currently lack insurance actually are eligible for either free or heavily discounted coverage. They just don't have it. And that's because There's a very, very complicated series of paths by which you can navigate coverage depending, again, on your specific circumstances, age, income, disease, geography, disability, what have you. Once you have patches like this, you'll always have gaps in the seam. So that's why it has to be universal and automatic. We also argue that it has to be free, something that may get us kicked out of the economist club because as economists for generations, We've preached that patients need some skin in the game, some copays and deductibles, so they don't use more care than they actually really need. And in the context of universal coverage, we take that back. It was kind of a really sobering moment for us. We've written enormously on this issue in the past. We weren't wrong about the facts. When people don't have to pay for their medical care, they do use more of it. We stand by that research and that of many others. This goes back to RAND in the 1970s, right? Exactly. (laughs) And, And the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which I ran with Kate Baker, whom you mentioned earlier. It's just that the implications we drew from that were wrong. That if we actually are committed to providing a basic set of essential medical care for everyone, the problem is even with very small copays, there will always be people who can't afford the $5 prescription drug copay or the $20 uh, doctor copay. And there's actually terrific recent work by a group of economists, uh, Tall Gross, Tim Layton, and Daniel Prince, that show this quite convincingly. So what we've seen happen when we look at other high-income countries that have followed the advice of generations of economists, going back, as you said, to RAND, and introduced or increased 
cost sharing in their universal basic coverage system to try to reduce expenses. It's extraordinary. Time and time again, these countries introduce the co-pays with one hand and introduce the exceptions simultaneously with the other. Exceptions for the old, the young, the poor, the sick, veterans, disabled. Sound familiar? It's the U.S. health insurance in a microcosm applied to co-pays. And so what you see happen, for example, in the U.K., that was famously you know, free at the point of service when it was started in 1948, but then bowing to budgetary pressures and the advice of economists introduced, for example, a bunch of co-pays and prescription drugs. They then introduced all these exceptions. The end result is that currently 90% of prescriptions in the UK are actually exempted from these co-pays. So it's not that co-pays don't reduce healthcare spending. They do. That economic research is correct. It's that they're not going to do that when they don't exist. All we do is add complexity with these patches. So that's, I think, the part that we can get up and stand up and say and get a lot of cheers and applause. But I do want to be clear, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. We do insist that this universal automatic free coverage be very basic. And that's because our social contract is about providing essential medical care, not about the high-end experience that obviously everyone would like if it were free. And so, and that's exactly where you get into these fights about how even we're seeing, you know, with birth control and pretty much any prescription drug, you have to offer one drug, but there are other drugs that might be more expensive and insurance plans trying to save money don't want to offer them. You can see already where the tension points are going to end up, right? Exactly. And every other country has dealt with this, which is why we know it can be done. But they do one thing that is startlingly absent from U.S. health policy. Besides the universal coverage part, they also have a budget. And it's kind of both incredibly banal and incredibly radical to say we should have a budget in our U.S. healthcare policy as well. Everything else has a budget. When school districts make education policy, they do it given a budget and they decide how to make tough choices and allocate money across different types of programming. Or they decide to raise taxes and go to the voters to raise taxes to fund more. We don't have a budget for healthcare in the U.S. When people talk about the Medicare budget, they're not actually talking about a budget in the sense that when I give my kids an allowance, that's their budget and they have to decide you know, which toy to buy or which candy to purchase. When we talk about the Medicare budget, we just mean the amount we have spent or the amount that Medicare will spend. There's no actual constraint and that has to change. And only then can we have those tough conversations, as every other country does, about what's going to be provided automatically and for free and what's obviously nice and desirable, but not actually part of essential medical care and our social contract to provide it. But of course, the big response to this is going to be, and I've covered enough of these debates to know, you're going to ruin innovation if we have a budget, if we limit what we can pay the way every other country does, that we're not going to have breakthrough drugs or breakthrough medical devices or breakthrough medical procedures, and we're all going to be the worst for it. That, I think, is a very real concern. But it's not a problem for us because if that's the concern, when the next administration adopts our policy, they can set a higher budget, right? If, we're, if we think that we want to in induce innovation and the way to do that is through higher prices for medical care, then we can decide to pay more for it. Or we can decide, oh my goodness, right? Get it coming and going. On the other hand, 
we don't want to raise taxes. We don't want to spend even more of public money on healthcare. Okay, well, then we'll decide on less innovation. That's in some sense separable from universal, automatic, basic free coverage. We can then decide what level we want to finance that at. And also, to be clear, we fully expect in the context of our proposal that about two-thirds of Americans would buy supplemental coverage that would get you access to things that aren't covered by basic or greater choice of doctor or shorter wait times. And so that, again, might also, but that would be privately financed, not publicly financed, but that would also help with the innovation angle. And this is not a shocking thing. This is exactly how Switzerland works, right? Yeah. The somewhat sobering or, or dare I say humbling realization we came to is that, as I said, we very much thought about this kind of, I guess, as academics from first principles. You know, what is the objective that we're trying to achieve? And given that, how do we achieve it? But once we did that and we looked around the rest of the world, right, it turns out that's actually what every other high income country has done, not just Switzerland, but all of them have some version and they're very different on the details, but some version of automatic universal basic coverage with the ability to then supplement if you want more. So with many things, when you do research on them and then you run into the man on the street and they say, isn't this simple? Can't we just do what every other country does? When it comes to healthcare delivery and how to cut waste and overuse and deal with underuse in the healthcare system, the man on the street is unfortunately wrong. And we have a lot more work to do to figure out how we can get more bang for our healthcare buck. But it turns out they were right all along. And we or I and my co-author and many other, I think, academic economists and policymakers just didn't realize it, that actually the coverage problem has a really, really simple solution. And that's the key message of our book. So one of the things that stuck with me for 15 years now is a piece that Atul Gawande wrote in The New Yorker just before the debate on the Affordable Care Act about how, yes, every other country has this. But in fact, every other country had some kind of event that you know, triggered the need to create a system. You know, in England, it was coming out of World War II. Every country had some turning point. Is there going to be some turning point for the U.S.? Or are we just going to have to sort of knuckle under and do this? So we deliberately steer clear of the politics in, in most of the book because our view is the question you started with, like, why can't we agree? So let's at least, can we agree on the solution before we figure out how to achieve it? But of course, in the epilogue, we do discuss this, you know, how could we get there? And I guess the main lesson that we take away from our read of history is that universal health insurance was neither destined to happen in every other country nor destined not to happen in the U.S. We talk about several incredibly near misses in the U.S. Probably the closest we got was in the early 1970s when both the Republican Nixon administration and the Democratic Congress under Kennedy had competing proposals for universal coverage on the table. They were actually arguing over whether there should be co-pays when there are different accounts of whether the Democrats got overly optimistic with Watergate looming and thought they could get more, or some senator got drunk and had a car accident and ways and means got derailed. But we had a near miss there. But also, and to your point about the UK, more soberly, if you look at the history of other countries, it wasn't easy there. I mean, the British Medical Association threatened to go on strike before the implementation of the National Health Service in 1948. So despite the 
you know, now it's the National Health Service is as, as popular as the British monarchy or actually more popular, perhaps. <laughs> Probably right? more. And, you know, and, and is beloved by much of the British population. But if you look at the narrative that this was destined to come out of the post-war consensus, the labor leader, uh, Bevan, who was pushing for it on the eve of its enactment, described the Tories as, quote, lower than vermin for their opposition to it. I mean, it was just, and similarly in Canada, when Saskatchewan was the first province to get universal medical insurance, there the doctors did go on strike for over three weeks. So this idea that every other country just had their destiny, their moment when it clearly came together, we were destined not to have it. Neither seems to be an accurate reading of history. Well, it's a wonderful read. And uh, and I'm sure we'll come back and talk again as we dive back into this debate. I'd I'm love sure to. to do. Amy Fickelstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, What the Health listeners, you already know that few things in healthcare are ever simple. So if you like our show, I recommend you also listen to Tradeoffs, a podcast that goes even deeper into our costly, complicated, and often counterintuitive healthcare system. Hosted by longtime healthcare journalist and friend Dan Gornstein, Tradeoffs digs into the evidence and research data behind healthcare policies and tells the stories of real people impacted by decisions made in C suites, doctors' offices, and even Congress. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next, we have Sylvia Morris, one of a group of friends who are women physicians who want to make it easier for the next generation of women physicians. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Sylvia Morris. She's an internist from Atlanta and one of five authors of a new book called The Game Plan, A Women's Guide to Becoming a Doctor and Living a Life in Medicine. Dr. Morris, welcome to What the Health. Thank you so much for having me. So why does there even need to be a book about being a woman in medicine? Aren't medical schools more than half women students these days? They are. But when you look at sort of the specialties. And once you get out into practice, women leaders are still not as plentiful. They are not 50%. So we just wanted to write from our perspective, some tips and tools of the trade. So before we talk about the book, tell us about how you and your co-authors got together. It is rare to find a book that has five listed authors. Exactly. So we actually went to med school together. We were classmates at Georgetown. And we met, I will say, in the early 90s, shall we say, 1992, 1993. And after we finished med school as well as training, we started doing girls trips. Our first one was like to Las Vegas and then subsequently have just really evolved. And probably 10 years ago, we were sitting around uh, in Newport Beach and we thought, you know what, we should figure out something to do to really to give back, but also to share information that we didn't have. I am a first generation physician. Uh, several of my co-authors are as well. And it would have been nice for someone to say, hey, doc, maybe you should think about this. So that's why we wrote the book. I noticed that, yeah, I mean, you start very much at the beginning, like way before med school and go all the way through a career. I take it that was very intentional. Yes, because I don't think most people wake up and decide they're going to be a doctor and then apply to medical school. And although we all have different journeys, some of us decided to become physicians later, later meaning in college. I was a kid that always wanted to be a doctor. So at five, I would say, I want to be a doctor, and here I am, a physician. 
Uh, so we really wanted to highlight the different pathways to becoming a physician and just so that people can just, we're going to peel the curtain back on what's happening. I love how sort of list forward this book is. Tell us the idea of actually making a game plan. Well, we're big list people. I think in, in med school, you kind of learn, well, wh what's your to-do list for today? You need to check that CBC. You know, you have to follow up with physical therapy, all of those things. So lists become a really inherent part in how we do business. And I think people understand the list, whether it's a grocery shopping list. Uh, so we want it to be prescriptive, not specific, meaning you must do X. But here are some of the things that you need to think about. And a list is very succinct and everyone can get it. Which leads right into my next question. I love how this is such a nitty gritty guide about all of the balancing that everybody in such a demanding profession of medicine, but particularly women, need to think about and do. What do you most wish that you had known when you were starting out that you'd like to spare your readers? If I could go back to my 17-year-old self who was just dropped off at Berkeley, I really would say enjoy the ride, and that sounds so trite because we get very caught up in it has to be this way. And quite honestly, things have not turned out how I thought they were going to turn out, certainly in many ways much grander and beyond my wildest imagination. But you do have to be intentional about what you want. So I've been very clear about wanting to be a physician, and I've worked along that path. It is never a straight line. Uh, so just embrace the fact that there are going to be some ups and some downs, but keep in focus on the goal and persevere. I like to borrow the word from Associate Justice Jackson, how she talked about persevere. I noticed that there are a number of places where there are sort of key decisions that need to be made. And I think, you know, you talk about being intentional. I think people don't always think about them as they're doing them, as you're deciding where to go to medical school, where to do a residency, what specialty to choose, what type of practice to participate in. The, the five of you are all in sort of different specialties in different sort of practice modalities, right? Yes, we are. And I think that that really adds to the richness of the book. And again, there's no one way to get to your goal, uh, but we have the benefit of being able to sort of bounce ideas off of each other. So if we are looking for a new job or kind of a career pivot, then we have someone to reach out to to say, hey, uh, you did this. What are your thoughts? What should I look out for? How important is it to have a, a support system? I mean, obviously, you talk about family and kids, but I mean, to have a support system of friends and colleagues and people you can actually share stresses and successes with that others will understand. It is so important to know that you are not alone. There's nothing new under the sun. So if you're going through something where we suffer in silence and isolation, that's when bad things happen. So having a, a trusted group of friends and whether it's one person or three people, I'm lucky to have at least four people in my life that I can be candid and vulnerable with. It makes all the difference in the world. You know, my mom died when I was in medical school and having a support of my colleagues, my friends to say, hey, yeah, you can you can keep going. You can do this. Uh, that's important. And there's some very low periods in residency just because you're tired all of the time. Uh, so having a group, whether it's one or three or four, 
then please um, have friends. I'm curious that while you are all African-American women, you don't really have a separate section on navigating medicine as members of an underrepresented group. Uh, is that for another book entirely? Was there a specific reason that you didn't do that? I think certainly when people see us on the cover, then you realize, oh, they are women of African descent. Uh, and I also think that because their women are still underrepresented in medicine, in particular in leadership, that we wanted to make sure we reached the broadest audience. And quite truthfully, our message works for not only women, but also works for men. It works for people of color. We just really wanted to say, hey, these are the things that we can think about when you are applying to medical school and as you embark on your career. But I like the idea of a second book. <laughs> Actually, that's my, my next question is, what do you hope that men get out of this? Because, you know, flipping through, that it's a really good guide, not just to being a woman in medicine, to being anyone in medicine or really anyone in a very time-demanding profession. Yes. The word ally is, is kind of overused now. But I think that it gives the men in our lives, uh, whether they be our partners and husbands, our fathers. I have a favorite uncle, Uncle William to have an inkling of what's happening and how to best support us. Uh, so I think that there's just some, some valuable pearls. Well, thank you very much. It is a really eye-opening guide. <laughs> Dr. Sylvia Morris, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this special episode, here's my chat with Michael Lenore, a physician who spent much of his career trying to improve the health of African-American patients. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Michael Lenore, an allergist and pediatrician who spent the last four and a half decades serving patients in the East Bay of San Francisco and working to improve health equity nationwide. He's a former president of the National Medical Association, which represents African-American physicians and patients, and a founder of the African-American Wellness Project, a nonprofit that grew out of the realization of just how large and persistent health disparities are for people of color. Dr. Lenore, welcome to what the health. Well, thank you so much. Health disparities and health equity have become, if you will, trendy research topics in the past couple of years in the health policy community because we know that people of color have worse health outcomes in general than white people, regardless of income. But this is hardly a new problem. When did it become obvious to you that despite other civil rights advances, the health system is still not serving the black community equally? Well, I think it goes back to actually 2002 when as a doctor in a community that had people of color, physicians of color, I recognized that there was a difference in how uh, African-Americans were treated both professionally and personally. And it was such a stark difference. So I gathered together most of the black health leaders in um, the Bay Area, some running hospitals, some running programs too, were directors of health, some Congress people, uh, and some local politicians. And there were about 30 people in the room, and I asked to go around the room and ask, give me one instance where the health system uh, that you engaged in treated you disrespectfully, or you didn't get information, or you felt abandoned without advocates. And we weren't four people into some, because some people started, started crying about experiences that they'd all had. Now, I knew they had these experiences because as a doctor, you know, I'm in the doctor's lounge as a consultant in allergy and immunology. I see the differences in how black people were treated as opposed to whites. And I see the respect that was given to white physicians was not given to black physicians. So at that point, I decided, you know, there's something upside down in this health system. The concept is that 
Health is supposed to take care of you from the top down. Either your insurance company is supposed to take care of you or the feds or somebody. But my feeling was, you know, for African-Americans, the health system was not going to change unless we changed it from the bottom up. And so that's when we started the African-American Wellness Project to educate African-Americans how to deal with some of the aspects of early detection disease, prevention, exercise, and things like that. But more importantly, what to happen when you have a problem or when you engage the system? What tools do you need? What resources do you need? And how do you get the best possible outcome? So just this month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a survey that found that one in five women reported being mistreated by medical professionals during pregnancy or delivery. For black women, it was closer to one in three. This is clearly some sort of systemic problem, in, even in addition to racism, isn't it? The health system is not functioning well. And we did a piece on this yesterday because it's pretty clear that this has been a problem as long as I've been a physician. Uh, where it's really a problem is the increased incidence of maternal mortality among black women. And so now we know that there's something going on that's not being taken care of. There's one classic video that we show when we talk about this subject. It was a black physician in Illinois who was in a small Illinois town, was in the intensive care unit, and could not get the care that she needed when she had COVID um, respiratory issues. And so what happened was she was broadcasting from the ICU about what, what was being given to her, what it was being talked to her about, what was not being done, and her care was no her symptoms were ignored. Uh, they delayed in doing stuff, and she died four days after she did this video. But, you know, we're not surprised. I mean, I see these studies of black people don't like the healthcare system. Uh, you know, Kaiser Foundation must have spent, I don't know, how many dollars looking at that study, a study we did five years ago, on every study I've seen, black people are not happy with the healthcare system. Uh, they had 12,000 people, we had 400, but the conclusions are the same. And it's not so much because of the uh, availability uh, or the capacity of the healthcare system to close the gap on the health of blacks and others in the society. It has a lot to do with unconscious bias and the fact that the system doesn't recognize itself. And no matter how much you call attention to it, it continues year after year decade after decade. Is there anything we can do about unconscious bias? I mean, now we all know it's there, but that doesn't seem to get around to fixing it. There's several things that have been talked about, changing medical schools and you know, showing more positive images so that when we come out of medical school, then the only patients that we see are, are poor, black, uneducated, you know, down and out, uh, because those are the ones that go to the VA hospital or, or in public hospitals. So that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is that, that black patients should call it out when they see it. That's the big thing. And I think we're much too docile in the healthcare system. Uh, here's what I always could feel that if we get as mad about healthcare that is disrespectful and unequal as we do when someone cuts us in front of us in the Safeway line, we wouldn't have that problem. Seriously. I mean, so you think people really just need to speak up more? Absolutely. And then the piece that we did yesterday, the piece was entitled Healthcare System Not Equal. Don't put up with it. What can black doctors do and how do we get more of them? I know that's a big piece of this is that people don't feel represented within the healthcare provider community. Well, unfortunately, we know and probably you know and probably most patients know that a good doctor may not be the smartest person in medicine. They may have a variety of different prejudices, a variety of different talents, a variety of different capacity to engage patients in a positive way. But our medical system 
in our system that screens students for medical school. Really, Scully looks more at analytics. I mean, what kind of grades did you make? What do your SATs look like? What kind of symbolic social things did you do uh, in order to get into medical school? And so consequently, that shuts out a lot of students at a very early place in the system. A black student often goes into the system determined to be a doctor, but he doesn't have those resources, those networks, those connections. Uh, so he bombs out in junior college. I can remember I, I had a unique educational experience. I went to a college-educated high, well, middle school in Cincinnati. It was called Walnut Hills High School, the number three high school. You took a test, and my dad was a YMC executive, so we moved to Dallas, Texas, which was completely segregated. So I recognized immediately when I got there that the learning experience was different, but the education was not. Because I learned as a black student in an environment uh, that was the college preparatory school, that Latin and the same, all of that same stuff, that I didn't have many allies, didn't have many networks. And my parents, like so many black parents, said, there's no excuses. You can't. Don't be coming on with excuses of discrimination when we were facing it every day. And more than that, on the positive side, we're not being encouraged like the white students were. When I got to Dallas, you know, we didn't have all the books. We have all the stuff, but the teachers knew I had talent, and they pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. So and when I went off to uh, Howard University by choice, could have gone to Stanford, all these other places, then I had the talents. Whereas back in my high school, there were students as good as I was as students. And then they went off to the University of Texas, where I ultimately transferred, which didn't seem to be a big deal for me because I thought Howard actually was harder. But they go to the University of Texas. They were from a segregated school. And they're by themselves, and they bomb out. Uh, and so consequently, they don't get to realize the bigger part of themselves. So get back to this question that you asked five minutes ago. The reason is that the parameters to choose people from medical school need to start earlier. And they need to encourage blacks, especially black males, of talent. So they then go on and do some things that are necessary to get into medical school. Yeah, I've seen some programs that are trying to recruit kids as young as, as 11 or 12 to gauge interest in going into a medical career. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that's so unnecessary, but it's a game. I mean, who's the doctor? I mean, your old doctor, so-and-so didn't go to Harvard. So the talents to be a good doctor, you know, I don't know whether you feel this way. I don't think you can teach judgment by the time somebody gets out of high school. And being a physician, the first thing I think that you have to have is good judgment. And the judgment can be sometimes assessed on the MCAT and these other things that they use to prioritize students for medicals. I know the Association of American Medical Colleges is very concerned about the Supreme Court decision that came down earlier this year um, banning affirmative action. Um, are, are you also worried about what that might mean for medical school admissions? Well, you have to realize in California, we've been dealing with this since the decision. So we've not been able. And I served on medical school committees. I served on University of California at San Diego, and one here at UC San Francisco, kind of chaired the clinical faculty, so had a chance to kind of get engaged in policy here. And what we found out was that you can't change that. You have to change the system itself. Yeah, I mean, how worried are you? Obviously, in California, I guess things have gone okay, but it's going to be a big change at a lot of other medical schools about how they're going to go about admitting their next classes and trying to at least further more culturally diverse classes of medical students. Well, you know, California's not done okay. I mean, and the percentage of California students 
I believe, at University of California, is probably 50% less than it was in the days when we had more liberal affirmative action guidelines. And so in those days, we were putting 24, 25 black students in these classes. That's not happening anymore. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not to worry. I mean, the reality is right in front of us. And I think that uh, some schools, so well, not necessarily the schools themselves, but the politicians that supervise these schools, uh, that have you know, oversight over these schools, are going to use this uh, as a weapon. I, I know that already many of the attorney generals have sent letters to their university saying, look, I don't care what you do. It's not going to happen anymore. And the first persons to leave jobs now are diversity. You know, they have a good job in diversity management. Or the, you know, the diversity, those jobs are disappearing almost as we speak. So if you could do just one thing that would help the system along to make things a little bit less unequal, what would it be? I think it would be making certain that the system institutional, there's, there's two types of unconscious bias. There's personal unconscious bias on the part of providers, but there's institutional unconscious bias. And I think we have to attack that first, that institutions don't look at African-Americans the same way. And here's, let me give you an example of what that falls out to. All right, let's look at the statistics on vaccinations in ethnic groups. Uh, the impression is that black people didn't get vaccinated, but at the end of the day, if you looked at the numbers, we were vaccinated pretty much about the same level as the rest of, of America. But when we got ready to look at this, uh, what we found out in hesitancy was based upon the fact that black people did not trust the system. And institutions expected to come out, here you are, you're in an institution, you see a different doctor every week, and they come out and tell you, you're supposed to do give shots and stuff like that, then black people don't, don't believe that. They don't, go, they don't go with that. And so consequently, at the end of the day, uh, once the information came out uh, and people got a chance to look at it, we started getting vaccinations at the same rate. But the people who are asking us to trust them had never attempted institutionally to obtain our trust. And so I think on those circumstances, uh, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the things we most have to attack is institutional unconscious bias, institutional racism uh, that's covered over by the fact that we're taking care of the poor, you know, we do all these things here and there. But poor people have uh, opinions too. And if we expect to change the system where everybody's treated equally, we have to look at what the institutional policies or the institutional character or personality that results in the kinds of outcomes that we see in hospitals. And then we start looking at providers and other people. And they have to start engaging this community now. There'll be another pandemic. You know that. I know that. Probably this summer, things, this winter, things are going to go. What, what, what have doctors done? What have institutions done to gain the trust of the populations they serve? Probably nothing. Well, we've seen, you know, one of the things the pandemic has shown us is that now all Americans don't trust institutions anymore. Is there maybe even a way to, to help everyone gain more trust? I mean, I guess it's becoming much more obvious to at least the public health community that much of the public in general is distrustful of public health advice, of medical advice, of expertise in general. Oh, yeah, there's no question. This is not a unique problem that African Americans I mean, it's hard. It's just hard to trust a system where you, you have a problem and your doctor refers you to someone and your next appointment is four months away. And here's what the tragedy is. Nobody in Washington is talking about changing the system. I can remember with a big fear, what are we going to do? Are we going to do single payer? 
are we going to do this? At least there was a dialogue. Have you heard a dialogue in Washington about changing this awful healthcare system that denies people access, overcharges them, and then is not blamed for the outcomes? I haven't seen any of that. I haven't seen anybody talk about healthcare uh, at the national level. We used to do pieces. I remember years ago when I worked for CBS Radio, I tried to get a curriculum for hypertension, diabetes. Now you barely see anything about um, health except violence, and you don't see too many pieces that people could use for health education. So I think the system is really broken. And nobody's, I don't see any, even in the discussions, last health never came up. You know what, uh, Ukraine, but not the healthcare system, which is really cheating us all. Yeah, I know. I mean, we had an entire Republican debate, and there was not a single mention of the Affordable Care Act or anything else that Republicans might want to do to fix a health care system that I think even Republican voters know is broken. Yeah, well, I think Trump has sucked all the oxygen out of the room, and they're not talking policy very much at all. I mean, even the undertones of the policy discussions have Trump all over it. So I think we're in a very bad place, but I hate to see the escalating discussion on how to change the healthcare system, not just for the good of poor people and black people, I only white people were really particularly excited about the system. And that dialogue is not taking place. Is there anything that you can offer that's, that's at all optimistic about this? Well, no. No, I really can't. As a doctor, I can tell you, here's the expanding issue. It just seems now that the solution to all the health problems that we have are the social determinants of health. I mean, you know, income and poverty and food, you know, issues and uh, employment, all of that, they'll contribute definitely to health outcomes. Uh, and so until we change those, then obviously the system, they say, will not change. Every chronic disease that I've looked at over the last 10 or 15 years, and especially recently, where Black people don't do as well, it's not because they don't get into the system at the right time. They may even have early disease detection you know, it's because they are not uh, treated the same way. So if you look at statistics, well, black women have more deaths from breast cancer, or black children have more asthma. It's not because they don't enter the system. It's how they're treated when they get into the system. So to go back to what we can do, we have to arm the patient, black or white, to understand what you need to do to get the most effective outcomes. How you select your primary care doctor is critically important to everything that happens to you how you're able to challenge the system with a second opinion when you want that. To have an advocate, if you go into the hospital, not your brother or sister, but somebody knows something about healthcare. So what we're trying to do with the African-American Wellness Project is to do that. We talk about early detection. Here's the other problem with this. Now, I'd rather have penicillin than get rid of poverty or to get everybody a job. And in the New England Journal, probably maybe a week ago, there was an editorial how we, as physicians, should be able to manage the other elements, the social determinant elements, as part of our visit. Now, I've barely got enough time to see the, see the questions that I have. Now, I'm supposed to get somebody food and a job and all of that. I'm not saying that that doesn't need to change. It does. But if every solution to the problem of health equity is the social determinants like I'm seeing, then, I mean, we may not get penicillin, but we may get somebody a job. <laughs> I, think, I think that that, that process is important. It is important. But if you look at studies that at the VA, especially with men with prostate cancer, or if you have prostate cancer and you everything's done exactly the same, early detection, the uh, PSAs, the, the biopsy, the uh, 
uh, identification of the prostate is done not by biopsy, but by MRI. And they treat it as black people do better. And the same thing is true in breast cancer and other chronic disease. All these studies, every and this, you, go, you go to PubMed, you look at all these studies, and you see every study talks about that. That the reason that they're not doing it as well is either the social determinants of health. Now, I mean, I appreciate that, but I'm not going to wait for everybody to get a job before I, I try to get a stent put in my artery or I try to get some concern from my position. So to go back to your question again that you asked me five minutes ago, is that we need to talk to people about the system they face, and they need to go in it with less naivety and more organization. And that's what we try to do with the African-American woman. We try to provide you with the information and the tools that you need when you need to go into the system. If you need to know what questions to ask from asthma, we'll tell you how to do that. One of the things I've found out is as I engage social uh, media as a way to talk to people, because I've always used traditional media, um, and who I recognize now that you have to do it a little differently. You can't do it exactly the same way. And so I just think we have to prepare people uh, and we have to tell them uh, the things that they need to do uh, to recognize, to understand before they enter the system until we start uh, to get more serious in this country about that dialogue, about the dialogue on our healthcare system. I think the individual is the only way we can approach it. Dr. Nalor, thank you. Thank you so much for all of what you're doing, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our amazing engineer, Francis Ying. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me or X me or whatever. I'm still at Jay Rovner, also on Blue Sky and Threads. I hope you enjoyed this special episode. We'll be back with our regular podcast panel after Labor Day. Until then, be healthy.